the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. Albert Barnes has written a great commentary, and Barnes put it this way, we are not to consider it, meaning our trials, as punishment, a curse, or a calamity. That's what James means here by joy. We are not to consider it as a punishment when we go through a trial, as a curse when we go through a trial, or as calamity. In other words, trials are not the result of a bad God, but of a fallen world. Have you ever felt as though some of your trials or challenges were directly from God due to a mistake you made, or even a sin? While we certainly face the consequences of our sins, we never experience trials as punishment, curses, or calamities. In today's message, Pastor Gary will help you to understand what James meant when he wrote, Count it all joy when you face trials. In his study, you'll gain a better understanding of how you can count trials as blessings and to grow from them as a believer. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. All right, James, chapter 1 is where we are tonight. For you note-takers, here's a little background on the book of James. The writer is none other than the guy after whom this book is named, James. But he is distinguished from James the Apostle. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus had some half-brothers and some half-sisters. They shared the same mother, but not the same father. Their father was Joseph, but the father of Jesus, of course, was God, and his supernatural birth was very different, unlike any other conception, unlike any other birth ever. And so this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, names four half-brothers that Jesus had. James is one of them. Also, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, a different Judas. And it tells us that he also had sisters, plural, although they're not mentioned by name. So we know that he had at least two sisters because it is plural. So we had, uh, in essence, four brothers, half-brothers, two, at least two half-sisters. And so it was, you know, a, a, a large family by, by some uh, comparison. And, and so this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the apostle, was martyred in A.D. 44 by Herod. Uh, his death uh, by the sword is recorded in Acts chapter 12. Uh, remember that the siblings of Jesus, the family of Jesus, did not initially accept him as Messiah. 
They doubted that he was the Christ. John chapter 7 verse 5 said that specifically Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, but they would later come to believe because in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it says that they are numbered among the 120 in the upper room after Jesus ascends back into heaven and the early church numbering initially about 120 are meeting in the upper room and they are waiting for the gift that Jesus promised, which was the gift of the Holy Spirit among those mentioned there in Acts 1.14 are the uh, brothers of Jesus. So at some point, they become believers in him as the Messiah. And then in Acts chapter 15, it tells us that, that this James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of this book, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, um, becomes the leader slash pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And history tells us that he will lead the church there for some 30 years. Um, He is consulted along with some of the other early apostles regarding some church doctrine issues. And so in Acts 15, he speaks to that and he gives leadership and direction concerning those uh, doctrines of the faith. And so here he is, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and the one that the Lord used to pen this epistle. Uh, He is traditionally and affectionately called Old Camel Knees. And the reason he is called that is because James had an incredible prayer life. And he was on his knees so much that his knees became calloused. And if you've ever seen camel's knees, they are calloused and they're gross looking. Um, And so tradition says that James was called Old Camel Knees because he had developed such calloused uh, knees as the result of such uh, incredible uh, times of prayer, such a prayer warrior. Uh, tradition says that he was martyred in the year A.D. 62 by being thrown from the temple wall. Church history says that Ananias, who was the high priest at the time, convened a meeting with the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. And they demanded that James renounce his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And when he refused to do so, uh, church history says that they ran him off the pinnacle of the temple. They threw him to his death from the highest point uh, of the Temple Mount area in the city of Jerusalem. So that's the background on the writer himself. The date of this epistle is somewhere around uh, A.D. 50, which makes it the earliest of all the New Testament books. Uh, Some uh, theologians, some uh, church scholars date this book even earlier than that. Some date it around 45 A.D. So somewhere between 45, really no later than 50 A.D., uh, James was inspired to pen this epistle. So again, it makes it the earliest Your Bibles are not in chronological order. If they were in chronological order, the New Testament would begin with the book of James. And so it predates Paul's epistles by at least two years. The recipients of this letter, as you'll notice in the first verse, um, is uh, the scattered Jewish believers. And when we say scattered Jewish believers, we're talking about the diaspora. The diaspora is the Jews who have been now dispersed throughout, in this particular time, Asia Minor in particular. And so this letter is apparently going to be read in multiple churches throughout Asia Minor to minister to uh, these Jewish believers. 
And the overall theme of this letter is practical Christian living. He addresses it, if you'll notice real quickly in your Bibles there, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So the 12 tribes are referenced to Jews. They were suffering and they were living in poverty. They were suffering persecution because if you were a Jew who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, you were basically ostracized by your own people. The majority of the Jews did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. Remember, Jesus came among his own and his own received him not. So when you were a Jew who was a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah, the first coming, You were shunned by your family. Some families would have funerals for you. You were ostracized. If you had a business, people would stop buying from you. And so it was a very difficult time of persecution. It was a very difficult time for Jewish believers to basically survive. And so James is in part encouraging them uh, in in the midst of their persecution and their poverty as a result of nobody uh, buying from them. And, um, and, And yet... It's causing some of them in their persecution to start living in a worldly manner. And so the overall theme of this, having to do with practical Christian living, is that James is going to challenge them to go on to spiritual maturity. He is going to give us, if if you count, somebody did, I didn't, 50, 50 exhortations throughout this letter. Uh, The book of James has been compared to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament in that you're going to read very short, succinct, pithy exhortations, one after another, after another, after another. It's kind of the wisdom literature of the New Testament that Proverbs is to the Old Testament. And and James is going to challenge his, his readers here that the evidence of a Christian's life is how that Christian lives. And that's why he's going to talk here about the the delicate balance between faith and works. Because while he's going to make the argument that works don't save you, he's going to make the point that works show that you are saved. Now, this book has become problematic for, for some people. In fact, Martin Luther, when he read this book, he called it the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He, in fact, he, was, he questioned whether it should even be included in the canon of Scripture because Luther came out of Roman Catholicism and he was liberated by the book of Romans and he really understood the whole idea that we don't work our way to heaven, that it's by grace are we saved through faith. And he was, he was liberated in his understanding. So he, he, he posts his you know, 95 thesis on the uh, um, uh, Wittenberg uh, Dora in, there in Germany and he, and he basically then, well, he, he is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, but he, but he basically leaves of his own uh, volition. And, and so then Protestantism, that stream then uh, begins uh, to, to emerge, and, and here we are related to that stream. And so Luther's liberated from the whole idea of works, 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 and he reads the book of James, and he feels like James emphasizes works too much. And in reality, what James is going to teach us is that works are the evidence. If you're truly a Christian, you're going to live like one. And if you're not really a Christian, it's going to, it's going to be evident by the way you live. And so there shouldn't be a contradiction there. If, if you really are a Christian by belief, then you should also be a Christian by behavior. And so he calls Christians, this is why this is a good practical book even for us today, he calls Christians to holiness. He calls Christians to holy living. And he says, listen, if you really are Christian, there's going to be some ways that you live out your faith. 
And, and so he's going to develop all of this in five short chapters. So the overall theme is practical Christian living and, and the idea of holiness. But if we, if we drill down to basically five main themes of this book, it would be these five main themes. Number one is trials and temptations. And that's one because it goes together here in chapter one. He's going to talk about trials. He's going to talk about temptations. But it's really one kind of continuous uh, stream of thought. Number two, another main theme here is, again, this relationship between faith and deeds or faith and works. Number three, he's going to talk about speech. You know, Christians should watch their mouths. And, and part of the evidence of, you know, that you really love Jesus is by the way you, you're, you know, you, your speech is, by the way you talk, by, the, by your language. Uh, and number four, he's going to talk about wisdom. And then number five, he's going to talk about prayer. So we're going to be looking through, you know, the whole book here, but we're going to come across these themes. You'll see it. And, and he doesn't necessarily talk about these different themes um, in, in chronological order. It's, he kind of um, mixes it all up throughout, throughout the book. So it's, some, it's somewhat ordered, and in other ways, it's somewhat of a disorganized uh, book, which is another reason why Luther felt like James wasn't the author of it. But anyway, that, that's for another debate. But here we are um, in James chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first two verses, because the first two verses, well, actually, I'll read the first uh, four verses. The first four verses here are full of just a lot. It's rich. I mean, there's a lot of meat here in this book. We're going to take our time, and we're going to go through it slowly. But you'll notice here how rich it is just in the first four verses. So follow along here in your Bibles. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God. That word servant in the Greek is doulos. So he's happy to say, listen, I'm just, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of his. I belong to him. He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Again, these are the Jewish believers that have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, greetings. He says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. It's just a universal term. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, let's park it there for just a few minutes because verse 2 is a very challenging verse. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. By the way, he's going to use that term, my brothers. He's going to talk about brothers 15 times. He's going to specifically say my brothers eight times. So this is an affectionate letter, but it's also a very strong exhortation. He's writing to people that he loves. He's, he's writing to people that he shares a common bond with, a common faith with. They love Jesus. He loves Jesus. And right out of the gate here, he says something that's very challenging. I mean, you know, who among us naturally consider it joyful when we face trials of various kinds? But he, but he says it right at the beginning here. Consider it pure joy my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So first thing he's going to talk about here along the first topic is trials and temptations. And in regards to trials, he mentions this here in verse two about considering a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now I've, I've underlined three words in this verse, whenever, many, and kinds. 
to point out that what he's basically saying is three things from these three words, at least in the NIV translation. Number one, that trials are somewhat spontaneous. That's what he means by whenever you face. Okay, it's unpredictable. Trials don't tell you in advance when they're coming. Don't you wish you could prepare a little bit? But they're not going to call you up and say, listen, there's a trial coming next Tuesday. Get ready. Trials are spontaneous. They are unpredictable. Number two, they are numerous. He says, whenever you face trials of many, many is the key word there. They are numerous. They, they, They don't just simply come once only in your lifetime. Over the course of your life, you will experience many trials. And he says many kinds. The third word there is kinds, meaning various. So trials come in spontaneous ways. The trials come in numerous ways. Trials come in various ways. There are many kinds of trials that we will face. We face trials in the world. We face trials in relationships. We face trials in health. We face trials from Satan. You know, he's a part of trying to afflict us. We face trials of various kinds. And yet, James says here, consider it pure joy. Now, he doesn't mean it in a celebratory way. He means it, well, I'll just quote for you out of Albert Barnes, has written a great commentary, and Barnes put it this way, we are not to consider it, meaning our trials, as punishment, a curse, or a calamity. That's what James means here by joy. We are not to consider it as a punishment when we go through a trial, as a curse when we go through a trial, or as calamity. In other words, trials are not the result of a bad God, but of a fallen world. That's what he's trying to say here. Which is why then we can consider it joy, because when we realize that trials are not the result of a bad God, but of a fallen world, then we can turn to God to find the source of our joy through the trial. Now, everybody understands, right? Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is very circumstantial. Happiness is very temporal. Happiness, you know, will come and happiness will go, depending on what day it is, what mood you're in, if it's sunny, if it's rainy, if your boss likes you, you know, all these kind of things, very circumstantial. That's happiness. Joy is a constant if you know Jesus. And that isn't to say that you don't have bad days, because trials come in various times, various ways, spontaneously, numerously, and in many different ways. But it is to say that in the midst of the trial, there's this constant, there's this peace in the midst of it. There is this reliability on the Lord in the midst of it. There's the source of a contentment that does not fluctuate based on the circumstances. Our joy is rooted in Jesus. That's why this is not a, you know, this is not saying put on a plastic face, act hypocritical, pretend like, you know, everything's fine when everything's not fine, but it is simply to say, hey, things aren't fine. I'm going through this trial, but the source of my joy, the source of my strength, the source of my peace is in knowing Jesus. This is why Psalm 34 verse 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. And it says in Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
And because of that, we can say like the psalmist did in Psalm 46.1, that God is our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. That's how we have joy in Him, because He helps us to face our trials, not alone, but with His help and with His presence. Then the question becomes, why? Why do trials come? When you look at the Bible, there are basically three reasons why trials come, and here they are. For our maturation, for our correction, and for our direction. All trials basically fall into one of those three categories, or maybe a combination. The first one is for our maturation. That's basically what this passage is saying to us here in verses 3 and 4. He says that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature. Uh, New King James and ESV says you might be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, This is very similar, by the way, to what Romans 5 tells us. Paul Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 to 5, he says, We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So trials tend to grow us up. They build character in our lives. We don't, you know, I don't know anybody who really welcomes them. I'm just telling you the residual effect of trials is that it tends to grow us up. It draws us closer to the Lord in ways, friends, and those of you who've been through trials can, can acknowledge this. They bring us closer to God in ways that the good times just don't. I mean, you know, I love to press near to Jesus in the good times, but I'm telling you, I've pressed into him harder in the bad times. And as much as we don't like to go through the bad times, we grow more during the bad times than we do the good times. Is that, is that anybody's testimony? You grew by leaps and bounds through the difficult times, through the, the stretching times, through the challenging times. Uh, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, when he was talking about his own trials and his own difficulties, he said, we're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. He said, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so Paul was saying, I I didn't like the trials, but I can tell you this much. It purged me of self-reliance and it made me more God dependent. And that's the nature of trials. You know, we esteem in our culture, people who are self-made people. But let me tell you something. The problem with self-made people is they're self-reliant because they're self-made. And when you go through a difficult time, if, if you think you're going to be the source of, of your strength, you're mistaken. And, and that's when people begin to realize their desperate need for God. And so when Paul says that, he said, you know, these trials happen and I might not rely on myself as much as I would on God. Uh, trials have a way of moving us in God's direction. Trials have a way of growing us up and maturing us and refining us and deepening our walk with him. Uh, Billy Graham once wrote this. He said, quote, when a ship's carpenter needed timber to make a mast for a sailing vessel, he did not cut it in the valley, but up on the mountainside where the trees had been buffeted by the winds. 
These trees, he knew, were the stronger of all. Hardship is not our choice, but if we face it bravely, it can toughen the fiber of our souls. End quote. Pastor Gary Hamrick is bringing us through the book of James in the current series on Cornerstone Connection. The book of James is filled with incredible words to live by, like these. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These are hard words to practice, but James gives us a reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is nothing more beautiful than a faithful heart, but the path to growing one is filled with hard things. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that when steadfastness has had its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So next time you face a trial or hardship, remember these words from James and begin to count it all joy. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Do you live in the area? Take the next step and come see us in person. We would love to share a Sunday service with you at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 in the morning. We're also here every Wednesday night at 7. When you enter into community, you start to grow in the faith at a faster pace. We'd love to be that community for you. Well, we're out of time for today, but we'll be right here again next time. Come back and see us as we learn how to follow Jesus more closely together on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.